Well, thank you for being here. Really appreciate uh, your presence on this very sunny, kind of steamy um, afternoon. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of reading from my new book, Boomerang, Boomerang, and then I'm going to turn it over to Carolina de Robertis and Ingrid Rojas Contreras, who I think are two of the most amazing writers working in the country right now. Um, they're extraordinary um, wordsmiths, extraordinary storytellers, and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy them. Um, I am going to, um, they're reading prose, but I'm going to read poetry. So uh, <laughs> um, I'm going to start with a piece called The President of Coca-Cola. Ana Mendieta is the president of Coca-Cola and dresses in yellow, a mother of millions, an international pop star rolling by the riverside covered in spit and feathers. Ana Mendieta is the US senator from Florida, the governor of New Hampshire, four feet, 10 inches seared into wood, traced with blood, formed from mud and grass and gunpowder. She leans on the bar counter, a mentirita in her hand, Anna Mendieta is the Grand Duchess of Luxembourg, a prestigious professor of international law at the Geneva School of Diplomacy and International Relations. Anna Mendieta is a shadow play of light in the cornfields of Iowa, a mound of earth outside Havana, cave drawings. She's the mayor of Wichita, the tender-hearted sibling of the late dictator, a glamorous fashion model, welfare recipient, emergency case in the emergency room, a soldier, dentist, and historian, the host of a daily talk show on Telemundo who gulps down a milky black cow every day before taking calls. Ana Mendieta is the intellectual author of Miami's resurgence, the evil genius behind the bombing of a plane that killed every member of the national fencing team, and the man who ripped out his lover's guts when she moaned the name of another. Ana Mendieta is a power hitter, MVP and six-time All-Star celebrating at a gay B&B &B on Duval Street with a chocolate slam and a tray of cocaine. Ana Mendieta is the president of Coca-Cola and a double agent. She invented the sitcom, the telephone, birthed Amazon, came over with 14,000 kids and got deported with 2,021 others, mostly murderers. Ana Mendieta fears that if she weren't an artist, she'd be devoted to a life of crime. Ana Mendieta is subject and object. She's overwhelmed by feelings of being cast out of the womb, from the island, from exile. Ana Mendieta is the target of racism and a particularly fierce misogyny. She has a wicked cackle, a cruel flutter of hands. She swallows a dark and dirty, an eye of the storm, a fucked up float. Ana Mendieta is the goddamn president of Cola Coca, and she's both gleeful and embarrassed by the millions she earns, but also keen on what all that money can do. She's on the outside looking in, and so in with the in crowd. Ana Mendieta is alone. She pushes and presses her face against the glass until there's a tiny hairline fracture that snakes back and forth and back and forth, and the glass separates so she can pop each piece with her fingers. Ana Mendieta is the youngest of all, the last to open her eyes when Earth was created. She's the feminine ideal, 
the masculine ideal, the non-binary ideal, and inspires lust and fruitfulness. She loves handheld fans and mirrors and is constantly dipping her fingers in honey jars. Ana Mendieta loses interest quickly. She's a peacock, a sack of bones, a woman dozing on the roof of a deli 33 stories down. Thank you. The, the book is actually a flip book. It's English on one side and then it's Spanish on the other. But the Spanish is a little bit different than most Spanish that we're used to because um, I wanted to do a kind of a gender-free language. And so I had to, because Spanish is so much on the binary, I had to sort of recreate some of the language using stuff that's you know, been established, like ella instead of el or ella, and le instead of la or el. But um, I made a decision to make the entire language non-binary, not just persons. So uh, it's, been a, it's, it's been sort of an interesting experience to put this out and also to read this uh, in both English and Spanish. And the next piece that I'm going to uh, read to you, I'm going to uh, read in English first, and then I'm going to um, I'm going to read the next one in Spanish, um, and uh, we'll we'll see what you guys think. Okay. This there are three poems in the book that are called Boomerang, and this is the third one. We have polished a boomerang to clip a hummingbird. We have polished a boomerang. This is what it feels like what it feels like. This is what we know it feels like to clip a hummingbird because we clipped ourselves first. This is what we know it's like to strike because we struck ourselves first. This is what it feels like to lie on our side, to suck a few drops of nectar off our lips. This is what it feels like not to drown. This is what it feels like when a hummingbird has froth on its beak. This is what it feels like when we gurgle or spit blood. This is what it feels like to be trapped in a room, in a panic, in a rush. This is what to do. Turn the lights off. Cover the glass. Do not use a net. Come find us in the dark and scoop us with your hands. So then we flip the book around. And here we go. Boomerang. Hemos afilado une boomerang para cegar a une colibrí. Hemos afilado une boomerang. Este es le que se siente, le que se siente. Este es le que sabemos que se siente cuando se ciega a une colibrí porque nos hemos cegado primero. Este es lo que sabemos que es golpear porque nos golpeamos a nosotros mismos primero. Este es lo que se siente al acostarse de lado para chupar unas cuantas gotas de néctar de nuestros labios. Este es lo que se siente al no ahogarse. Este es lo que se siente cuando una colibrí tiene espuma en el pico. Este es lo que se siente cuando gorgoteamos o escupimos sangre. Este es lo que se siente al estar atrapada en una habitación 
en pánico, en apuro. Eso es lo que hay que hacer. Apagar las luces, cubrir los cristales, no usar una red. Ven a buscarnos en la oscuridad y recógenos en tus manos. Thank you. Um, this is a piece called You. You are standing on a wild horizon, bleak and blurry, at the beginning of what seems, even in its adolescence, a cursed and forsaken century, incapable of memory, bombarded by apocryphal stories and promises that, even as they're pronounced, even as they fall from our leader's mouth like white espinels and moissanites, betray their false sparkle. You, you, you're confounded by leaders as authentic as Princess Caribou and the scrap metal lustic sold as the Eiffel Tower. Oh, how they chant their chants. War is peace, freedom is slavery, and most importantly, ignorance is strength. That's right, the less you know, the more indignant. The less you know, the more protected. The less you know, the more correct you're bound to be. The chorus is no less than, say it loud, I'm here and I'm proud. Doesn't that sound familiar? Take a breath, let the chorus go silent. Walk away on a path of your own design and determination. Even if you lose your way a few times during the journey, don't be afraid of the loneliness. You, you, you. You must have a brutal clarity about the river of tears that brought us here, to you, and how that river flooded Al-Andalus, Jamestown, Ulster, Jiangsu, Salem, Lancaster, Warsaw, Constantinople, Port-au-Prince, Boston, Sand Creek, Gripsland, Frog Lake, Wounded Knee, the Armenian Highlands, Guimas, Jeju Island, Istanbul, Berlin, Cabinda, Chicago, Ponce, Katyn, Odessa, Kefalonia, Manila, Haifa, Lida, Hula, Batankali, Noganri, Nairobi, Sharpville, Paris, Jacinto Vera, Zanzibar, Hue, Melai, Emike, Lepoldville, Mexico City, Borga, Karen, Delhi, Chonek, Buganda, Tokni, San Salvador, Derry, Munich, Azesa, Marishahapi, Guangzhou, Palmira, El Mosote, Hama, Lucanamarca, July, Clifton Hills, Belfast, Tiananmen Square, Aramaona, Barrios Altos, Siva, Cape Town, Kigali, the West Bank, Sarajevo, Luxor, East Timor, Port Arthur, Actial, Omag, Antian, Haditha, Blacksburg, Kabul, Kandahar, Abu Ghraib, Charleston, Lafayette, Orlando, Darfur, Aleppo, and how we drank that river water, and how that river poisoned our blood, and how that blood became the instrument with which we write the history we bequeath to you. You, 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 you. You may take pride in the lattice of scars your ancestors received from the lash, and for how long your blood pumped underwater while they waited for you to bop to the surface just so they could drown you again and how long you kept your eyes open when your head rolled 
and how long you sang aloud while your limbs burned. But hold on to the truth of how sometimes your people handled the lash, and sometimes you knotted the, wrist, the witch's wrist, and sometimes you loosed the guillotine and threw the match, because none of us are truly free of past misdeeds, and that will help you forgive in the future. You, 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 you. You must not take anyone's word for anything. Remember that trust cannot grow from lies and contempt, that the only things those engender is capitulation to an unacceptably false reality. Be wary, be kind, yes, but be wary. Ask questions. Is this real? Is this really real? Seek out the answers, the many different and conflicting answers. Insist on them, weigh them, reflect, be a witness, take what you learn, prick your finger and write a new story. You, 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 you. You must learn to have a sharp eye, a steady step, an arm that's strong enough to carry more than just you, a heart that loves hard and true, and a sense of timing that's as precise as the most precise atomic clock or the moon. Commit, be a witness, take what you learn, prick your finger and write a new story to be read in the days to come. Then listen, listen to the stories others have written and that are read aloud like a song. You, 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 you know that you will fail and fail royally over and over again. And that each failure must be executed with dignity because each failure is also an inspiration, a demonstration of the system's weakness, a nod to the possibilities a lesson to all who testify and a call to reflect and decipher the moment of failure, the weak spot in order to reinforce it or get around it or otherwise reign over it so the failure can become something else next time, whether you're here to see it or not. Commit, be a witness, take what you learn, prick your finger and write it down so it can be read as a testimony in the days to come. Then read all the proclamations that are entrusted to you, bind them, encrypt them, discuss them, repeat them to everyone you meet. You, 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 you. You must learn to live with your pain, which means wearing it like a medal, but also, and perhaps mostly, giving in to its limitations, to its call for refuge and balm, sometimes with others, sometimes alone. And in that pain, you must find the formula to understand the pain of others and be their refuge and balm, if they let you, if they want you, and to be that without expecting payback or reward. Commit, be a witness, prick your finger and offer it to your companions in battle. You, 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 you. As a less resort, you may try the fog, frog te fog test, breathe, and see what happens. See if your heat makes them sweat or if they step right up to kiss you back with clear and honest intent. You. You must accept that you cannot go at it alone, that the future that must be rescued is a world upon world, ours, mine, upon yours and the next generations, an endless horizon. Lock your fingers together. Listen attentively. How? amid the chaos and uproar, our commitment to each other 
to the stories we tell and the battles we fight, there's a steering of hope like a fluttering of pages of wings. Um, this next piece is called uh, Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre is, for those who don't know, the night before Yom Kippur. It is the, the, a prayer uh, requesting forgiveness for apostasy. With the consent of no one, we pray among the dykes, the miscreants, the homeless, the enraged, the jobless, the women who've had abortions, the women who've had to give up their children, the women who raised their children, the women who raise other women's children, the deported, the refugees, the exiled, the stateless, the sick, the women who take care of the sick, the women who believe in a higher power, and those who don't, who howl at the moon and those who just howl, those who bleed and those who don't, the drug addicts and the love addicts, the disabled, the women who take it and the women who hit back and the women who run, the women who are orphaned, the women who partnered and the women alone by choice or circumstance, the women who stayed, the women who are here now. All vows, all things we've forbidden ourselves, the oaths we've sworn, the laws we've reluctantly agreed to, vows made in doubt, vows coerced, all we promise and dedicated and forbade ourselves. From now on, let us be released. Who told us we were naked? Who told us shame is shame? Eat, eat of the fruit, sisters. And thank you. This last piece is called The March. I'm about to step outside. I'm about to step outside to the elements, and my anticipation is a long inhalation that covers the world upon release. This is the beginning of a movement based on facts and not on sentiment or pronouncements, though both sentiment and pronouncements are useful and worthy. As I begin to lift my left foot, my sartorius muscle allows my knee to move up towards my body. I am joined by others, however they can join with me, others who have suffered and are not afraid to continue suffering. What we seek is a new majority rooted in justice for all whose conscience is committed to seizing wrongs and doing right. What we want is nothing about us without us. What we want is for each individual to define their own identity and expect that society will respect them. We shift our weight, unlock our knees, arrange our bodies in the best way for each of us. For an instant, most of us are standing on one foot. We're not in a hurry. We are not dreaming. We are ready to give up everything, even our lives. We shall do it without violence because that is our conviction. What we want is freedom. What we want is the power to determine our destiny. As my left foot comes down, it is coordinated with my right and they match the equivalent movement of those who have joined me and with whom I am joining. We are firmly rooted. Whenever possible, we let our limbs swing in a natural motion and we keep our heads facing forward. What we want is the complete elimination of military forces, not just from this or that territory, but from every corner, every outburst on earth. What we want 
is full and meaningful employment. What we want is decent and safe housing. What we want is an education that teaches us our true histories and their consequences on the present. As each of us lifts our right foot or makes the equivalent movement to ambulate, we are now a perfectly synchronized force, even in our differences and occasional disorder. What we want is an immediate stop to state brutality and the assassination of black people and native people and disabled people and queer people and trans people and women and children and mothers and fathers who can only do so much because they are shackled by the very state that seeks to kill them for having foolishly believed they were free. What we want are the doors flung open to Folsom, Rikers, Guantanamo, San Quentin, San Juan de Lurigancho, ADX Supermax, La Sabaneta, Camp 22, Paulsmore. It would be fatal to overlook the urgency of the moment. As we advance, we are thunderous thrum. Some of us will run under the rain in Seattle and toward traffic to block Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. Others will block Wall Street. More will storm the Port of Oakland. There will be one lonely soul in snowy Bethel, Alaska, and clusters in Little Rock, in sweltering Ferguson, and Tallahassee, and Flagstaff, Baltimore, Detroit, Honolulu, Boise, and ancient Salem, Wichita, and Northampton, Oklahoma City, and Spearfish, South Dakota. Nerve and muscle adapt to the rhythmic stimulus of our own noise, the noise we make together. It is true that when, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one person to connect to another and another and another in order to defend our equality, our difference, our dependence on one another, then Thank you again. It is, uh, it is absolutely sweltering. <laughs> and I really thank you for sitting in the sun. That is crazy. Okay. So our next reader is uh, Carolina de Robertis. She is a writer of Uruguayan, Uruguayan origins and the author of five novels, most recently The President and the Frog. Her books have been translated into 17 languages and have received two Stonewall Book Awards, Italy's uh, Reglum Julie Prize, and numerous other honors. She teaches at San Francisco State University, lives in Oakland with her wife and two children. She is also one of the most beautiful people I know, one of the most beautiful writers I know, and someone who has been a tremendous friend to me. She is family as far as I'm concerned. Carolina. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. It's fantastic to see you out here in the sun. Thank you, Achi, for that gorgeous introduction. Hermana del alma siempre. Um, I'm in awe of Achi's work. Those po about those poems, right? Amazing. And I have been waiting for Ingrid Rojas Contreras' next book, the memoir that she's going to read from in a few minutes for years because I admire her work. So don't sleep on Ingrid Rojas Contreras coming right up. 
Um, and I am just so thankful to Litquake and Yerba Buena Gardens for making this time. This is my first in-person reading um, from my work in 19 months since before the pandemic. And that feels so incredibly special um, to be here with you and to be sort of standing in the sun, unmasked. Um, my most recent book, The President and the Frog, is um, inspired by, in part, by the life of real Uruguayan President Jose Mujica, who um, was a revolutionary guerrilla back in the day, long before the presidency, and once said that he, in part, survived brutal solitary confinement during the dictatorship by talking to a frog. I took that detail and ran with it. And ultimately, this feels like um, a book about resilience, particularly resilience when we feel like there are forces working for, toward our erasure. And in that context, here we are soaking up the sun. Uh, thank you for everything you've done to be here and alive today. Adelante. So I'm going to read from the first chapter um, of this book. It opens in November 2016. Um, the former president of an unnamed Latin American country is 82. And he's um, welcoming some international journalists to his home to interview him. An engine outside. He approached the front door. There they were at the gate. A van, two of them this time, a man, a woman, from Germany, or was it Sweden? He couldn't remember now. His calendar was so full they had all started to bleed together, and in any case, a welcome to them all. These two seemed young, limber, busy disembarking and gathering equipment, and they hadn't yet seen him in the doorway. The spring air was lovely, the warmest so far, that kind of November sun that flirts with your skin, coy about the summer to come, a good day for an interview in the garden. He had suggested the garden, politely, but really, that was the only place. Usually, with two of them and the camera to set up on a stand, there wasn't enough space in the combined kitchen and attached living room. And anyway, they were never satisfied by the interior light. No sweeping vistas here, ha, not even close. Nothing like the majestic windows and fancy molding of the official presidential residence of his own country or of countries he had visited as head of state. But despite that, or more accurately, for that very reason, he knew they would want to see the inside of the house where he had lived as president and get their own footage, direct images of, look, can you believe it? Breaking news, the way an old man lives. And really, he thought to himself, regardless of what they say, that's all you are, an old man. The reporter said something to the cameraman, then looked up and caught the ex-president's eye. She smiled with genuine pleasure and waved. She was wearing sneakers, no high heels, a sensible and poised woman in her early 40s, perhaps, with the look of, say, an elementary school principal, warm and eagle-eyed. There were interviews, and then there were interviews. And this reporter, he realized, watching her start up the path toward him, would not be one of the predictable ones who lingered in the shallows. She might not be the kind to start with the common question, the one about his house, the way he lived, that why. She might start at the end or in the middle with the disastrous recent election in North America, a catastrophe only just beginning to send its ripples into the world along with questions surely on the tips of many journalists' tongues such as, how the hell do we carry on? What will it mean? What now? Or maybe she would start all the way back in prehistoric times, his guerrilla years, his prison years, perhaps that other popular question, which was, how? How did you survive it and become, well, um, you? 
a kind of dive right into deeper waters, she would be capable of that. The smart ones often took that route, thinking it gave them more time to burrow around the ocean floor in search of secrets to pry open. As if secrets were the pearls inside of oysters held in crusty shells, and he himself was a crusty old geezer after all, so why not? They fancied themselves pearl divers, the kind you read about in other countries who knifed down and tapped on shell after shell. There was a name for them. What was it? He couldn't remember. Not the first time the word slips his mind this week, damn it, but what could he do? At least he was still sharp enough for a lot of things, and in any case, whatever they were called, that was how they did it, the pearl people, tapping with their fingertips while reporters went about it with their questions. Tap. Tap, what's in there? He didn't want to be tapped anymore. Not today, he thought, with a hint of panic, which startled him, because what did it matter? He knew how to do this. He could do it in his sleep, and anyway, there was nothing special to be found. Was there? What could be left to pry open? Surely, this journalist knew better than to think she could uncover something new. He was done with all that. He'd been burying himself for years now. He was 82 years old full of creaks and aches and bullet wounds that itched with the turning of the weather. He had told all his stories and answered all the questions. He had a reputation as a man who loved to talk, and it was true. He had talked and talked throughout these recent years, these presidential years, about the old days, the new days, the yet-to-come-what-will-we-see days. He had spoken more words than he'd thought possible in a single lifetime. When he was a little boy, he used to imagine that somewhere in heaven, for this imagining took place in that very early period when he still believed a heaven could exist, a vast crowd of majestic registers counted all the words spoken by every human being in the world, that every time a child was born, a new register appeared gleaming among the rows, and all you had to do to see the sum of your life's speech was reach that heaven place and find the beautiful machine that bore your name like one of those old-fashioned cash registers that ring cheerily when you feed them or take anything away, only glowing. And instead of showcasing the number of pesos in the little window, it displayed the total of your spoken words. It would spool out every syllable you had ever uttered on a bright kilometers-long receipt. Well, if such a place existed, he would surely have the longest spool of anyone alive. It amazed him now, his childish faith that the universe would bother to preserve such elaborate records of people's spoken lives. Even if it could, why would it bother? Naturally, he had learned, as he grew up, that the opposite was true. Most human speech went unrecorded, unregistered. Even today, in the era of gadgets everywhere to document your sounds, and certainly, there was no such thing as what he'd imagined, no gathering of heavenly contraptions, no spooling notes, no system of preservation. If anything, the forces of the world leaned toward erasure. There was nothing except people, their voices, and the air that held them, with time's river sweeping over it all. Still, not all speech dissolved, and even when it did, it wasn't nothing. He had heard people say talk was cheap, but that wasn't true. Talk was magic. It turned the world. It was power when you knew how to fuse it with what mattered and pull your actions taut inside it like arrows. Talk had made him what he was. 
Talk was his unique gift and his inheritance. He was born to a nation of talkers, a nation where you stopped by for a minute and stayed for hours chatting over wine or whiskey or yerba mate. Conversation threads and weaves the world. This was an element some foreign reporters didn't understand. This woman, though, already seemed different. He could tell just from her gait as she walked up the path. She seemed to have the listening gift, which would make for a different kind of interview, the thought of which, in fact, gave him a sense of the ground falling beneath his feet, though he didn't show it on the outside, trained revolutionary that he was. And what was it, anyway, this shaking inside? It wasn't fear, exactly, but something else, the prick of temptation, the possible tapping at shells that might want to creak open after all, because who was he kidding? Why pretend? Of course he still had places that were shut inside and had not yet been poked and found, buried secrets no interview had touched. Of course he had parts of the long story he'd never really told, no matter how many thousands of interviews he'd given so far. Obviously he did. How else could it be? Now come on, would an old guerrilla revolutionary like him really lay it all bare? Sure, he laid it bare. He told it all. He'd been the most honest president in the world, but even so, he had layers and then more layers, as did every human being. There were intimate versions of your own story you did not give the world. The deeper ones, the strange ones, the ones you yourself drew life from, but did not fully understand. And that was the problem with the listening gift. It widened the whole channel, and next thing you knew, you were waxing on, you were roaming out. You didn't know what you would say next or what would crack open. The woman was in front of him now, holding out her hand to shake in that first world way. And to his absolute surprise, the ex-president felt the past inside him, rising with a roaring fullness. And even though he knew he wouldn't tell it, he never told it, could never tell it, knew it couldn't be conveyed in words, he felt it push alive inside him, that closed up secret that deep sea story from 40 years ago, the one that could answer half their questions in one swoop, the story of the frog. Thank you so much. Our next reader uh, is going to blow your mind. Uh, Ingrid Rojas Contreras is the author of Fruit of the Drunken Tree, a silver medal winner in first fiction from the California Book Awards, and a New York Times editor's choice. Her writing has been in the New York Times, uh, The Cut, The Believer, and all over the place. A new work of nonfiction, a family memoir about her grandfather, uh, Curandero from Colombia, who it was said had the power to move clouds, is coming from Doubleday in July 2022. Please welcome Ingrid Rojas Contreras. I'm so excited to be here. This is also my first in-person reading in a long time. 
Um, yeah, so exciting. <laughs> and I'm so thrilled that you're here uh, with us too. I admire and love the work of Carolina Di Roberti and Aki Ojas. Um, and just this last, just listening to Carolina read today, this incredible, uh, her latest book that she wrote is so much about the hope of story and what story can do. Um, and it's, yeah, it's one of the things that kind of meant a lot and means a lot that we're all here today doing it, doing this thing together. Um, so I am going to read to you from my memoir and it's coming out next July. Um, and that, yeah, I'm so excited. I've also never read from this out loud ever, so <laughs> another exciting. <laughs> okay, so I'm just gonna read to you from the beginning. They say the accident that left me with temporary amnesia is my inheritance. No house or piece of land or chest of letters, just a few weeks of oblivion. Mummy had temporary amnesia as well, except where she was eight years old, I was 23. Where she fell down an empty well, I crashed my bicycle into an opening car door. Where she nearly bled to death in Ocaña, Colombia, in darkness, 30 feet below the earth, I got to my feet seemingly unharmed and wandered around Chicago on a sunny winter afternoon. Where she didn't know who she was for eight months, I couldn't remember who I was for eight weeks. They say the amnesias were a door to gifts we were supposed to have, which Mami's father, Nono, neglected to pass. Nono was a curandero. His gifts were instructions for talking to the dead, telling the future, healing the ill, and moving the clouds. We were a brown people, mestizo. European men had arrived on the continent and violated indigenous women, and that was our origin, neither native or Spanish, but a wound. We called the gifts secrets. In the mountains of Santander, the fathers had passed the secrets to the sons, who passed the secrets to the sons, who passed the secrets to the sons. But none of his sons, Nono said, had the testículos required to be a real curandero. Only mami, strong-willed, unafraid, more of a man than most men in his eyes, whom he liked to call mi animal de monte, could have housed the gifts. But mummy was a woman, and such things were forbidden. If a woman came to possess the secrets, it was said that misfortune would soon follow. Yet, as eight-year-old mummy recovered from her injuries after falling down the well, and as her memories returned, it so happened that from wherever her mind had gone, she brought back the ability to see ghosts and hear disembodied voices. The family says Mami was destined for the secrets, and since Nona couldn't teach them to her, the secrets had come directly to her. Four decades later, when I suffered my accident and lost my memory, the family was thrilled. Diaz poured drinks, told one another with an air of festivity, there it goes again, the snake biting its own tail. And then they waited to see how exactly the secrets would manifest in me. This is a story that happens in Spanish, where mami and the tias call each other vos, the archaic thou, but they use tu with me, the informal, tender you. Theirs is the way of speaking in Ocaña, where our family is from, and where language can sound like a colonial fossil. 
In Spanish, our stories are slow, then fast, and we cackle constantly. Mami and I are spooked by the way our lives echo one another's, so we don't often discuss our amnesias, but increasingly, this is an itch I must scratch. I scrape and scald at its touch, only to want to probe into it again. The tias asked me to tell them what it was like to live without a memory. I focus on trying to communicate how surreal it was, how cinematic. The tias roll their eyes at me, but they do so while looking at one another, like I am a bad television show they are watching and can safely comment on. <laughs> Such a gringa, this one, no? What they really want to know is what I dreamt. For mummy and for me, during our bouts of amnesia, our waking lives were punctuated by a constant state of confusion, but our dreams were grounding. Mammy's dreams were sequential, and in her dreams, she was a ghost. In mine, I had no body, and as I say this to the Diaz out loud, I realize I too believed I was a ghost. We have a word in Spanish for the walking of the dead, desandar, to unwalk, to walk until the walking is worn thin, to walk until the walking undoes even itself. That ghosts have a particular way of walking is an idea we inherited from the settlers who, who invaded the continent. But what is intrinsically ours is the sense of porosity, an understanding that we live between the real and unreal, and that often they are one and the same. So to us, the living go on ghost walks too. The indigenous people of the state of Santander, where both my parents are from, dreamt of the beasts they were to hunt the following day. At daybreak, they left and looked for their dream site. Dreams are important for us too. 43 years apart during each of our amnesias, Mummy and I dreamt of vanishment. Mummy was a village ghost. The villagers of the place where she was stuck spoke a language she did not recognize but could nonetheless understand. They worshiped her corpse unrotting and fragrant and therefore miraculous. I haunted a horizon of ocean where sometimes the waves withdrew, abandoning the land and bared the seafloor. Sometimes the land glitched and the ocean was suddenly replaced as if it had never gone. The waves shuddered then, coughing up lava and smoke, birthing islands. When Nono was treating an illness, he asked his dreams to guide him to the herbs he needed and when he woke, he hiked until the landscape matched his vision, and there he gathered the medicine. When Mummy was a ghost in the dream village where she was stuck, she practiced communicating with the living, and once she recovered her memory and became grounded in her waking life, she knew how to speak to the dead. I observed land being born in my dreams, and, I, and awake, I studied with attention as the self I was becoming created itself. I wonder if, since my life echoes mummies, which in turn echoes nonos, if all of us are on a, the same ghost walk, retracing and undoing one another's lives. The tias interrupt my thoughts. They've asked a question, but I haven't been listening. They ask again whether my post-amnesia dreams are prognostic in nature. In the long seconds before I answer, they look upon me with fear and hope. They know the secrets to be a blessing, but also a burden. They've witnessed that often an intoxication with power attends the secrets, and that this intoxication can upend lives, bring about alcoholism, depression, self-harm. 
But in spite of what it may mean, their eyes well with what seems like anticipation, and I read in their gaze a desire for it to be true, for me to be the last recipient of the secrets. I entertain for the briefest of moments what it would be like to say yes, to be someone like Mami to whom all come for help and advice. In the end, I shake my head. I cannot see ghosts like Mami could. I do not hear the dead, and the future is hidden from me as much as it ever was. The tias nod slowly. They look down. Bueno. They pat my hand. I've disappointed them. I had the opportunity to receive the secrets, and somehow I've squandered it. This is the information they've been waiting for, and now that they are in possession of it, they shift their eyes back to Mami, yearning for a different story now, one with death and ghosts and vengeance. But in between looking at me and looking at Mami, they say, better any way to be normal, live your life. You'll see how quickly you forget, quicker than a witch's fart. Which is a great Colombian saying. When I was growing up in Bogota, Mami kept a fortune-telling business in the attic of our house. At all hours of the day, Mami sat facing her clients, men and women of all stations and class, and told them about their lives. But clients who came looking for her healing, guidance, and advice surprised her with contempt when she introduced herself as a curandera. People fired Papi from jobs when they found out what Mami was, excluded them from social gatherings, and men who called themselves friends sexually harassed Mami when they, were, when they found themselves alone with her. Clients in our own house, after Mami had given them treatment, let their mouths bloat with epithets, spit in her face, refused to pay what they owed. Needing money, Mami allowed their hostility to teach her to call herself a fortune teller, an occupation that even white, blue-eyed Colombians could take up. This has always been the privilege of being mestizo, to claim proximity to whiteness, even if the cost is a hate directed at half of the self. Mami told herself she was proud of who she was, that she only cared, called herself a fortune teller for her own safety. In time, though, Mami could, would drop this last label too, opting in the end to simply describe herself as someone with an ability to see. Mami says, she lost the gift of seeing ghosts when my sister was born, and the gift of hearing voices when I was born. But in the wake of her decreased power, she retained the ability to foretell the future, as well as the eerie yet modest talent of appearing in two places at once. Throughout my youth, once a month, Mami's old lovers, close friends, Sisters and brothers called to report her visitations. While Mami was at home in Bogota, her apparitions sprang up all over Colombia, knocking on doors in Medellin, shuffling down hallways in Cartagena, tossing strands of black hair in Cucuta, vanishing into thin air from one moment to the next. Mami celebrated each account. Instead of apparitions, she called her doubles clones. Mami often asked after her clones what they had been wearing, what hairstyle they had chosen, where their eyes had seemed to alight. As soon as Mami hung up, her eyes clouded in a dark and mesmerizing defiance. I'll tell you what, though, she'd say. If someone ever made a real clone of me, I think I would kill her. Thank you.